This is Come and See by Father Ron Baird for January 9th, 2011. The Gospel is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Why do we baptize people? And we were told to, to make them children of God, you know. Both of which are true. But what purpose does it serve? Hmm? Marks them Christ forever? So if you had to explain this to someone who wasn't a Christian and lived in a country where they didn't know anything about Christianity, what would you tell them? Why we do it? Wash away sins ceremony. That's what I came up with, by the way. Anything else? It's a sacrament? What would that mean to somebody who didn't know what a sacrament was? They'd say, what's a sacrament? Brings the Holy Spirit into our being. How about that one, too? Why, why is that important? It helps us to join. How? How does it help us to join Christ? Holy Spirit directs us and guides us. You see why it becomes so hard for us to be evangelists for the gospel? Um, The church has been so churchified that it doesn't understand its own church. (laughs) I mean, we, we know the words. But to explain to somebody who isn't already a Christian is really hard, isn't it? And I think that's really the leaders of the church's problem, not the laity. How can you know what no one ever told you? Well, today I want to talk about that some. Why do we baptize people? What do we expect to have happen when we baptize people? Um, Their sins are washed away. But we have baptized babies, and they probably haven't committed very many. And and their sins are washed away, and that's true. But then the baptism of John and and the the Jewish uh, ritual of mikvah was also a washing away of sins. So what really happens? Well, to really find out why Christians baptize people, you have to go back to today's gospel lesson. And that's where Jesus comes to John in the Jordan to be baptized. Now, John didn't think that was a real good idea. He, he said, you know, but, I, you know, we baptize for the washing away of sins. And, you know, I, I call people to repent because the kingdom of God's here. And here's, I tell you, you don't have anything to repent of. So why would I baptize you? That doesn't make sense. And do you remember what Jesus told him? It is necessary in order to fulfill all righteousness. So what does that mean? Let me translate it into modern English. It's the right thing to do. I think that's the way we usually translate it. It's interesting, though. 
because in Greek, the way the words are put together, it's technically, it is necessary in order to fulfill the righteousness of all. That sort of change it a little. Means the same thing, still the right thing to do. Um, but all of a sudden now you can begin to see this is the beginning of his ministry, isn't it? This is part of the atonement. It's part of what's going to happen on the cross. It's part of what's going to happen in the resurrection. All these are not sort of isolated events any more than the incarnation is. Everything in Jesus' life is tied to his mission to make all righteous. So who are these all? Us. Jesus came to put us back into a right relationship with God because we have lost that. And that's why we baptize people is so that we might become the righteousness of God. Paul tells us that in his letters, that we might become the righteousness of God, that we may become like God. Which isn't that far off, by the way, from how we were made. How were, we, how were human beings made? In the image of God. So we were supposed to be like God from the beginning, weren't we? You think God acts like most of the people you run into on your way to work on Monday morning? Hopefully not, right? We'd be all be in big trouble. That would be bad. So how does that get accomplished? Well, again, if you go to today's gospel lesson, you begin to see how that happens. It says that after he was baptized, and it's kind of interesting because the three gospels all approach this from a somewhat different perspective. In, in you know, one gospel, you may have that the whole crowd hears it. In another gospel, you may and sees it. Another gospel you may have that that John and Jesus see it. And another one, as in Matthew, only Jesus seems to hear this. Now that doesn't mean that the others aren't true or they're in competition. It's just the perspective from which it's being told. In Matthew, Matthew comments that Jesus saw when he came up out of the water something happened. What was the first thing that happened? Nope, that wasn't the first one. The heavens opened. What would that look like? You ever seen the heavens opened? Kind of weird, isn't it? Flood? <laughs> yeah, suddenly a downpour. And we don't really know. If we say that their house suddenly opened, what would we mean? Yeah, all of a sudden you can see in. It was a window or a door or something so that now access has been reached, isn't it? Something that, that was closed before has now been opened up. The second thing happens is what? He sees something. Is that what it says? But can you flip back to the gospel there? This is interesting. I, that's what we see because that's what's in all the you know stained glass windows and all. So that's what we hear. Uh, one more. Are we missing a verse? Go back one. Yep. 
he saw the Spirit of God. He didn't see a dove. Honestly, that's probably a good thing because those of you who know Judy very well know that she has a bird phobia. And if the Spirit of God descended upon her like a dove, she would be destined for hell uh, because she would run <laughs> as fast as possible. <laughs> um, but he didn't see a dove. What he saw was the Spirit of God. How do you see the Spirit of God? <laughs> well, no, it was descending like a dove. It doesn't say he saw it like a dove. We don't have a clue, do we? What does the Spirit of God look like? Well, I suspect that if you open up heaven, you get to see. (laughs) And then you know. But that's exactly what happened. With spiritual eyes, Jesus saw the Spirit of God coming out the front door of heaven, and then it did something. What does it do? It descends. How does it descend then? Like a dove. There we go. Finally got that bird in there, didn't we? How does a dove descend? Does anybody know? Straight down. Like a dive bomber. Just. That's why sometimes you see the symbol of I never can stand the doves that they show. Um, they always did this on, there was some show on TV that was about angels. That's about, they always had a dove flapping through the air somewhere. That works for Noah's Ark, but I don't know about this case because it was supposed to be God. But um, that's not the way the Spirit appears. The Spirit appears descending, and we sometimes see that um, in imagery of a dove with its wings pointed up and its beak pointed down and its tail pointed up. It's plummeting through the earth. What's the significance of descending like a dove? It's obviously got a a target and a focus. What happened quickly? Yeah, I was going to say. When you go that way, it goes. Yes, (laughs) they tend to eat whatever they find. But it plummets would be a good word. Um, And then something happens. It says it alights on him. Now, that's an interesting translation because I don't know where they got it. I guess they thought it sounded good. What does a light mean to a lighting on him? Yeah, you sort of get this impression it sort of sits on his shoulder or something, <laughs> which seems odd. That sort of like, what did it do? Suddenly pull the brakes on at the last minute and then park? Or, I mean... It's interesting. The word in the Greek can actually be used in one of two ways, um, either coming or going. In this context, it would be coming. Coming on him. Now, why is that significant that the Holy Spirit would come upon him? Well, yeah, but he was God, so one would hope that he was filled with the Holy Spirit.
Why did he need it? He needed to have the Spirit come to him because he was also a human being. Why did he need it? So it's a kind of a witness so people around him would believe it, know it. And he would need, why would he need it? He's also fully fully God already. Now what's interesting is when you, that's why I told you at the beginning about the three gospels. If you believe Mark, the whole crowd sees it. That makes sense, doesn't it? You know, if, if you're looking at it from that perspective. If you're looking at it from the perspective of, of Luke, only John and he see it. may have those two reversed. One way or the other. So, was he just trying to convince John? And if you see it from Matthew and what we read, what does it say there? Just as he came up out of the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to who? And who saw? So he's proving it to himself. It tends to say there's something more to it than that, doesn't it? But something else has happened. And that's where the key comes in. Because what has happened in this moment is that it is a sign, a manifestation, a revealing of the righteousness of God. And that is that we, in order to become the righteousness of God, must become as Jesus is, both fully human, but also fully God. Now, that had already happened for him in his birth. For us, it didn't happen in our birth. If it happened in your birth, let me know. I want to talk to you afterwards because we need to either commit you or, or I need to bow down and worship you, whichever the case may be. But, um, so how does that happen to us then? Well, That's what it was. It was the sign. It was the sacrament, that which makes you holy. That's what sacrament literally means. That which makes you righteous. And that's what baptism is about. It's about this gift of the Holy Spirit, as David had mentioned, that that descends and, and comes and dwells in us, if you will. Doesn't just perch on our shoulder to kind of watch and go, Oh, no, I wouldn't do that. But comes and lives in us so that we are changed. We are fundamentally transformed. We are no longer what we were before. Prior to this baptism, we were fully human. And like any creature, we would die, and that would be it. But God was not willing to leave us in that place. And in fact, God was not willing to leave all of creation in that place, but the key to it was us. And so what he does is he sends his Holy Spirit so that we too might be fully human and fully divine. Did you know that you're like that? Did you know that if you've been baptized, you are fully a human being and you are fully God? So do you act like it? That gets pretty tricky then again, doesn't it? So what's that about? That is what the Christian journey is all about. You know, otherwise what we could do is just bring everybody in, get them dunked, 
have them baptized. You got your ticket punched. You're fully God now. You can't die. That's cool, right? We all go to heaven. Everything's great. It's almost like a magic trick. Except that to be fully human and fully God, both for Jesus, by the way, and, and for us, does not mean that we have to act like it, that we have to accept it, do we? Even Jesus could have chosen not to go through with the crucifixion. Do you realize that? He could have said, that doesn't seem like a good idea to me. Would you have said that? And why don't we think of it a different way? Like, why don't we just wipe out the bad guys? That way we can stick around. He's worked for Noah, well, sort of, <laughs> until he got off the boat and then he got in trouble all over again. But You see, it doesn't undo the full human side of us, does it? We have to want to live into what it means to also be fully God. And if that's exactly what Jesus does in his mission and ministry. He shows us that it is possible to live both fully as a human being, tempted in every way as we are, and yet also as God. And how did he do that? He tells us in, in the Gospel of John, but I say it all the time, how did he do it? He walk around in his superhero underwear and just kind of look underneath whenever he got doubting. He didn't have a phone booth, so he couldn't duck into that. What does Jesus tell us in the Gospel of John? He did. He said, I do nothing but, and I say nothing but, who's his father? That's how we do it. We become servants of the Almighty. We trust in him so fully that we will allow him to show us the way. And we will do those things. And in doing so, we can live into being fully human and fully God just as Jesus has. Because essentially what we have done is we have died to ourselves and we have become alive in Jesus, in Christ. And that's the greatest heresy of the church today. And it really doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right, by the way, because the church today, if you're on the left end wing of the spectrum, they've turned Jesus into sort of the cosmic social worker, you know, who wants to solve everybody's problems and help everybody because those poor people, you know, they're in such trouble and they're not very bright and I'm God after all. So, you know, maybe if I could just fix them, it would be okay. On the other hand, you have the conservatives who want to tell everybody, you know, if you would just do the right thing, if you would follow the rules and quit breaking them, then you wouldn't be in trouble. But neither one has any power in it because they're both about oughts. The real power comes from dying to yourself and allowing Christ to live in you. To die to yourself and to become Christ. That's what Paul says. To live as Christ, to die as gain. 
It is no longer I who do this, but it is Christ who lives in me. That's the Christian journey. That's the Christian struggle, is to let go and let God direct every move, every word, every action, every part of our lives. And, you know, if you think about it, to challenge the world to do that, that ought to be intimidating enough, shouldn't it? Without saying, well, and the way you do that is you don't drink, you don't smoke. I mean, <laughs> without going through all of these things that now you have to complete all the tests to make sure you get in. To simply say, if you want to be the righteousness of God, if you want to let that mission be fulfilled, that all might become righteous, you have to die to yourself and let Jesus live in you and for you and through you. You need to become Christ. Not Christ-like, or as I like to call it, Christ-light, but you need to become Christ. You need to embody Christ. Now you might say, well, how can a one human being ever accomplish that? Well, that question leads you right back to the beginning again. And I'll tell you, one human being cannot accomplish it. But Christ working in you can. You see, you can't do it. All you can do is let him do it. So what's our part in that? How do we let him do it? That's the hard thing, isn't it? How do I let Jesus direct my life? How do I let Jesus live in and through me? Well, the first thing is you have to actually think he's alive. It's going to be hard to let a dead guy direct your life. Even if he, and not only that, but if he's alive, you've got to believe he's here and present. Because he couldn't direct your life if he's somewhere else, could he? And all that means that you have to have a relationship with him. You have to know him. You have to talk with him. You have to listen to him. There's really no other way to do it. But even more so, you have to trust him. You have to get out of your own way and believe that Jesus is going to live through you and let him. And sometimes that's scary. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's offensive. I mean, think about it. If you knew you were going to be scourged and crucified, wouldn't you be offended? I'd be offended. <laughs> I mean, good at, you know, I thought you were a nice God. Why do I have to do this in order for all of righteousness to be fulfilled? And so the Christian journey is a journey of self-denial. Because what the, the mature Christian comes to learn is it is only when we become servant of all that we truly become who we are. And it is only by losing our life that we truly become who we are and gain it. So why do we bring people in to be baptized? Very simple. We bring them in to be baptized to start that whole process. That process, by the way, has a name called sanctification, to begin that. Because on their own, they couldn't do it, could they? Somehow or other, something has to be changed fundamentally within. But now they have that gift. 
And the question for all of us is how do we help one another and encourage one another and lift one another up to surrender to an all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing, and all-loving God who wants more for us than we could ever ask for or imagine? And how do we get out of the way and quit determining what ought to be done? And that's always the hard thing. And as I frequently tell myself, and my wife, and my son, and my dog, he doesn't listen. The only way you can do it is trust. To say, okay, I'm a little good, but if that's what you want, I'll do it. I'll believe you. And an amazing part of this is that each time you do that and something wondrous comes about, it may come about much later, by the way, you look back and you go, that could never have happened if I hadn't surrendered. And every time that you have that sort of aha moment, you realize more and more that what he said was true. That those who seek to gain their life will lose it, but those who lose their life for my sake will find it. That leads us to the last verse. After he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit comes and, and alights upon him, comes into him. God speaks. What did he say? Was that like, way to go, Junior? (laughs) Why was God pleased? Because it was the first step to where? To the cross. It was the first step, the first choice. When he's a baby, you're getting born, you don't choose a whole lot of that. You know, if you did, in the middle of it, you might change your mind. But he's an adult now. He's choosing, isn't he? He's choosing to follow the path. The fully human part of him has chosen to listen to God. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's all that God wants. He doesn't expect you to go home and stop all your bad habits. He doesn't expect you to not lie, cheat, steal, all those things. What he expects you to do is give your life to him and let him do all those things for you. And if you do, and when you do, in those moments, if you listen carefully, you'll hear the same thing. This is my beloved son, my beloved daughter. And I'm really pleased. I could be better than that. Amen. You have been listening to Come and See by Father Ron Baird. Come and See is a production of St. Andrew's Church in Lewis Center, Ohio. St. Andrew's is also available online at www.standrewspolaris.org. Please join us again when we invite you to Come and See.